Well, good morning. Our text today is Acts 2, 1 through 12. It'll be on the screen, or if you got your bulletin, which I hope you did. If you didn't, then Judy Bag's not doing her job. <laughs> all right. All right. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard their language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, literally, you told me this two minutes ago and there's hard words. Okay, I'm gonna try. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judeo, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, I'm going to skip that one. Okay, Egypt and other parts of Libya near <laughs> visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts of Judaism, um, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? I did that specifically so that Jocelyn would get a standing ovation. That's the main reason that happened, and I do apologize. I occasionally forget to find a reader, and when that happens, I, I lean on the staff, and Jocelyn, I, I apologize. Anyways, uh, you did a great job. That's true. We all know you can read now. That's good, too. All right. Well, it's Pentecost Sunday, if you didn't already know it, and that is uh, a big big Sunday for the life of the church. The, the church, churches, Christians all around the world are celebrating this day together. They're looking at these passages, and they're talking about these ideas, and they're thinking about all of the ways in which God's Spirit informs, influences, and empowers the church. It's a powerful, powerful reminder to us about the type of people we are called to be. Pentecost Sunday is a day when Christians all around the world kind of uh, find their roots again in the center of the Bible. They find their place in the center of the story, the narrative that is uh, the Christian life. But there's this interesting thing that happens at the end of this passage that Jocelyn so eloquently, see, I can't even talk now. God's getting back at me for doing that to you. Uh, there's a question at the end of that passage. If you have your Bible, you can see that question. The question is, what does this mean? What does this mean? It's a good question, isn't it? And it's a question that you would think would be fairly common or regular if people observed a violent rushing wind and tongues of fire resting upon people's heads, and then those same people for whom the tongues of fire are resting on their head also speak in languages that they've never spent the time to actually learn. What does this mean is a pretty good question to ask if you were to see all this, right? 
And it's the question I want to answer today. What does this mean? What does it mean in the scriptures? What's the significance of what it meant for these people at this time? And also, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us to not just uh, observe Pentecost Sunday, but participate in Pentecost Sunday? You know, Pentecost Sunday is often seen as a kind of holiday in the Christian church. It's something to be remembered. And when people think of that, they think about it in the same way that we think of remembering some, a historic event like Pearl Harbor or that time the Hawkeyes made the Rose Bowl and lost really bad. Uh, that's, a, that's something we memorialize in our home. Uh, but it's not exactly like that. Pentecost is not a historical event that happened roughly 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. Right now, this time of year is uh, graduation season, right? Who all went to a graduation party? Anybody go to a graduation party? Anybody go to a commencement this year? A commencement? Pentecost was far more like a commencement than it was like a historical event. It was the beginning of something. You know, at a commencement address, the commencement speaker gets up and tells the students or the graduates all of, the, all of their wisdom about how they should live life and how they should best go about um, being an adult, usually, right? It's this time when this commencement speaker gives their best shot at trying to help these students live good lives as they're kind of thrust out into the real world, right? That's far more what Pentecost is like than it is like a historical event. See, the church on Pentecost commenced. The, the disciples were told in no, uh, in no uh, unspecific way by Jesus that they were to wait in the upper room, to wait there after his, after his resurrection and ascension, to wait there for some particular reason. And what they were asked to wait for was this event that we read about in Acts 2, when the Spirit comes and dwells upon and in them. In Luke 24, this is exactly what Jesus says. He says, he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses to these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Jesus tells the disciples to wait for something, and what he instructs them to wait for is this experience in the upper room. Jesus seems to believe that what happened to the disciples in that upper room was vital before they set out to do anything for him, right? He seemed to believe that that thing was vital. But what actually happened there? What is this thing that Jesus believed to be vital? What happened on that first Pentecost, and what does it mean for us today? Because we can say this incredible experience happened to these hundred or so disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem on Pentecost Sunday. We can say that, right? But what does it mean? What does it really mean? The truth of the matter is, is that we can't understand what it means unless we understand the context within which this passage is located, right? We can't understand what this passage means until we come to an understanding of what the entirety of the story of the Bible means when it says Pentecost Sunday. What the disciples thought about when they experienced this thing in the upper room was completely and utterly informed by the whole story of Scripture. 
And until we can kind of understand where this story of Pentecost is located within the big narrative, we can't really understand it. We can't understand it how they understood it, and we can't understand it in the way that we need to for our context today. Does this make sense? So now we're going to read the Bible front to back. <laughs> sit, sit tight. It's like an Andy Kaufman thing. Anyways, that's a really weird reference. Okay, good. So, uh, today what we're going to do is look at the story of Scripture. So, keep your Bibles open with us, with me. But uh, we need specifically to look back at the Old Testament to see what exactly, well, what's the context? What, uh, what world of, of religious world, what thought world does this passage fall within in order to really understand what it's talking about? Does that make sense? All right. So, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can just open them up to the Old Testament. I'll tell you where to go in a second. But in the, in the story of the Old Testament, this is the story of God's interaction with the people of Israel, right? It's the story of God's interaction with His people, this people He, uh, he set out, he, he set apart in Abraham and His family. God leads this people out of captivity in Egypt, which is this big defining event for, this, for the people of Israel. And then He gives them the Ten Commandments, and He gives them the books of the law, and He gives them uh, a what looks to us in Leviticus like some very intricate sacrificial systems, right? And he does all of this. But, and he asks these people, he asks them to follow through, right? To observe this law, to define who they are in the world by the way in which they relate to God via the law. Does this make sense? So in order to follow God, you didn't have to follow the law. The, the, there's places in the, in the Psalms that tell us that uh, observing a sacrificial system isn't primarily what God wants. What God primarily wants is an is a open and contrite heart, this, the Psalms say. But the way in which they related to God, the way in which they defined themselves in the world as a people set apart for God is by observing the law, is by observing the words of God. Does this make sense? So God asked them to observe the law, to follow the law, to be good Jews, to, to be observant Jews, to, to, uh, to observe everything that he had commanded them. And if they do this, if they keep up their end of the bargain as being a people defined by the character and the nature of God, then God says he will, he will bless them, right? That, that they will be his, they, he will be their God and they will be his people, but something goes awry, which is that the people of Israel aren't necessarily able to do this. They struggle. They fall. They falter. They fall away. They serve other gods. They do all manner of things that God would not want them to do, right? And eventually they get carried off into captivity, actually multiple times. God essentially doesn't, he doesn't do these things to them, but he essentially removes his hand from them and says, now nations will do what nations will do, and you will probably swept, be swept up in the war that nations carry out, right? And this, there's this thing that happens, particularly in the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, where the prophets begin to talk about this process of what God is doing, how he's taking his hand off the people, and how he's allowing them to go into the captivity, and how, um, how they've just not been able to keep up their end of the bargain, right? They've just not been able to follow the law in the way that they were supposed to. They've not been able to define themselves by the character and nature of Yahweh in the way that they were called to by God. 
And specifically, uh, Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses 33 through 34 says this, in the midst really of captivity, he says this, this is the covenant, God is, he's speaking for God here, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And that line, I will be their God and they will be my people, is a covenantal line, right? This God says to Abraham, and he reiterates over and over and over again. You see, God has never stopped being faithful to Israel throughout the the entirety of this time. But Israel has, in some real and true sense, been unable to keep up their end of the bargain. Now, this does not mean that God has not been faithful to them, that he's not preparing uh, a backup plan here for them. But but they have seemingly been unable to do what God commanded of them. And yet Jeremiah comes on the scene, and he he offers this promise of sorts, that there is coming a day when the difficulty of following the law, this law that is external to me, right? It's it's codified on tablets made of stone, and it's written on scrolls, and it's, it's very external to the people of Israel. They actually they had writings, but they didn't see them, like the Ten Commandments were uh, in the Ark of the Covenant, right? They were kind of put away. They were kept away by the priesthood. They were, in some real and true sense, external to them. The, the day, there's coming a day when those external uh, laws, that external word of God, will in some real and true sense be inside. It will be inside. And that gives this, these people a great hope, a great hope, that they will now, because God will one day write this law on their hearts and in their minds, will be able to hold up their end of the bargain, right? They'll be able to define themselves by the character and the purposes of God as opposed to defining themselves by the character and purposes of all of the nations that are all around them and all of the false gods that are kind of swirling in that environment in the Mesopotamian world at the time, right? This is the hope that Jeremiah holds out for the people. But notice that the writing of the law on the hearts of each individual person has to coincide with something else. In verse 34, if you look closely, this writing of the law on the hearts of the people has to coincide with the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Interesting, right? Part of the reason that uh, Jewish people believed that they offered sacrifice was for the forgiveness of their sins. Yet, Jeremiah seems to, seems to offer up here that there is something more, something deeper, something more significant, that the forgiveness of sins is something that needs to happen in a more significant way than it has ever happened before in order for these people to have the opportunity, right? In order for them to have the ability to have the words of God placed in their minds and written on their hearts. Now, if we jump forward again to Luke 24, that passage we just read, what exactly did Jesus say in this passage? 
He says, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, and then skip down to verse 29. And I am going to send to you what my Father has promised. Stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Jesus seems to believe that what he is telling the disciples to do is to wait for this thing that Jeremiah had prophesied all that time ago. That, and Jesus seemed to believe also that what he had done in his dying on the cross, and this is a post-resurrection statement, right? And his dying on the cross and his resurrection provided for this forgiveness of sins, that he, in his very person, did what Jeremiah said needed to be done in order for the Spirit of God, in order for the Word of God to be really and truly in a person. Jesus seems to believe that what he did in his dying and rising accomplished that Thing. And now he's waiting, or he tells the disciples to go wait, for just the right time, for just the right time, in order to have this uh, miraculous infilling of God's Word, or of God's Spirit, or of God's power in their lives. And so, that is what happens, Right? The Spirit of God dwells in and amongst these people, and now they are in some real and true sense empowered to carry this message of the reconciliation and the renewal of all things, of the, the goodness and the forgiveness that is offered in Jesus. They're now empowered to carry this message out into the world in some incredibly powerful and potent way. The reason Jesus tells them to wait is because he wants to see what Jeremiah spoke about happen in the lives of the church. Very often, uh, Pentecost Sunday is referred to as the birthday of the church because the church is kind of launched out from the upper room on this incredible mission, right, that absolutely revolutionizes the entirety of the world from this point forward. Time itself is changed because the, the church is launched out on this time. We now measure time based on Jesus because of what happened with this church that was comprised of these hundred or so people in this upper room. And at Pentecost, this long-awaited Old Testament promise, this promise that God would now dwell with his people in some real and true sense and empower them both for mission, both to carry his message, and in their own lives to, to, in some real and true sense, embody or exemplify the character and purposes of God, right, has co finally come to pass. And this encounter changes everything. You see, Pentecost is the commencement of a church that is drenched in the humility and the power of God for mission, for a purpose, but more important than that, it is a deep and life-changing encounter, not just with a vague, uh, amorphous spirit, but with God himself, with a person. You see, Jesus says, during, as he's about to ascend into heaven, right, in Luke, as he was, he's telling the disciples to wait, he says, I'm going to the Father, and I'm going to make a place for you, right? And then I'm going to send the Spirit. And very often what we think about that is Jesus uh, talking about, so I'm going to go build a house for when you die, 
right? That's kind of the context we think about it. We hear that passage in, in, certain, in uh, funerals a lot. But that's not actually what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying there is, by virtue of my death and resurrection, I have made a place in the Father for you, and now the Spirit is going to come from that place and infill you. Does this make sense? Jesus is actually saying in some real and true sense that his death and resurrection accomplished something that can now be embodied in our very person. Powerful, powerful reality, right? That God himself, the living God, can in some real and true sense indwell us. The way the Old Testament puts this is that the, the law or the words of the law are written on our hearts and on our minds, right? which is a powerful way of articulating what exactly is happening here. It's no surprise that the Word of God is often referred to as Jesus, right? Jesus is often referred to as the Word of God in Scripture. That's not, I think, a coincidence of any kind. But this is a transformative event. It's a transformative event. And it's what makes Christianity so unique, I think, in a lot of regards. Because without the Spirit, God is far off right? Without the Spirit, God is far away from us. Without the Spirit, God is still external to us in the way that the law was external to the people of Israel. But with the Spirit, God is now in some real and true sense with us, that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus now dwells in our hearts and both empowers us and enables us to be His people, to be His people. Notice I didn't say to be His person, because I think there's something very unique about Pentecost that is uh, incredibly personal, but is not at all individual. Notice that the Spirit of God didn't descend on like one guy who went and said, hey, I'm the church, right? It descended on a group of people who then went out from that place and continued to build the church. It's this very communal experience, right? It's this very uh, corporate thing. And I think the, the corporate nature of Pentecost is built into the very idea of tongues. So the, the, um, the disciples in the upper room, they spoke in other tongues, right? And it says that all manner of people from all those different nations that Jocelyn read, all those people, right, they come and they hear God in their own voice right? They, they don't hear God, but they hear the praises of God in their own language, right? They hear the praises of God in their own language. Now, what does that sound like? If we look back through the story of Scripture, what does that, what, what, what brings, if you know the Scriptures, what does that bring to mind? Well, in Genesis 11, all the way back in Genesis 11, there's this story of, of a group of people in the Mesopotamian world again, who, this is before God has called Abraham or anything, and this people all speak one language, right? And they attempt to build a tower. It's called the Tower of Babel, right? And they attempt to build a tower, and this tower it wasn't literally going all the way to heaven because we know heaven isn't literally up, because if it was up for us, it would be down for people in China, and that wouldn't work, right? Uh, <laughs> just a little directional. I'm just helping you out, guys. Uh, so, uh, so we know that they were doing something that was symbolic, Right? We know they're doing something symbolic here. They were attempting to attain to God in some real and true sense. And God comes down, and what does he do? He, he frustrates their language. Their language is, in some sense, fractured. And this is the story of how, in the Mesopotamian world, at least, we got multiple languages, right? Now, what happens when uh, the Spirit comes on the church at Pentecost? People speak in 
tongues, right? They speak in languages. But this time, the presence of the Spirit in some real and true sense unifies people. It doesn't break them up. It doesn't shatter them. It doesn't push them apart. But this time, the Spirit of God unifies all people. And what did Jesus say again in Luke 24? And then this message will be preached in all nations, right? The power of the Spirit. Pentecost is a signal of the unity of the people of God and of the openness of God's plan and purposes for all people. Jeremiah prophesied about it too, right? In the Jeremiah passage, if you go back, you'll read that as well. He said, uh, you, he talks about neighbors and the, the way then this, this message will move towards them as well, right? The Pentecost does not keep us iso- as isolated people. Pentecost does not just, is not just me and God. Does that make sense? Very often, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rag on our own people a little bit here, which we can do because they're our people, right? Uh, very often in charismatic circles, in churches that associate with uh, Pentecost in really some real and true way, like our church does, our church is a part of the Assemblies of God, which is the largest Pentecostal denomination in the country. Very often, when Pentecostal people go crazy a little, it's when they overemphasize their direct line to God, right? Like the Spirit's on me, and I, I'm hearing exactly what's going on up there, right? Or down there, wherever. Uh, I'm hearing exactly what's going on, right? And I got it. I got it. But this is a misunderstanding of what Pentecost is. Pentecost is not, you have a direct line to God and you have most certainly a personal relationship with God, but Pentecost is the sign of the unity of the body of Christ in the Spirit. It is not a sign of your ability to go access God out in that field behind our church, right? Sometimes you, you, when you talk to, occasionally, I've talked to college students in my life, and when I talk to them and they say, I don't really want to come to church, and I say, oh, really? Do you believe in Jesus? And they say, yeah, I totally believe in Jesus. I said, okay, great. Why don't you come to church? And they're like, I can, I can connect with God in the woods way better than I can connect with God at church because I don't like the music or I don't, you know, whatever, or I've been hurt or whatever. This is completely antithetical to the idea of Pentecost because the idea of Pentecost is a corporate thing. It means we have to be, in some real and true sense, a body of people together, discerning and experiencing the Spirit of God, resting on and in us together as a people. Does this make sense? And so Pentecost is both uh, an empowering of the church and of individuals within the church for mission to go out, but it is also this unifying force that brings us together as we discern what the Spirit, what God would have us do together as a people. You see, when you and I are by ourselves, we are not the church in any real and true sense, right? When it's just me alone, I'm not the church. Now, I, I, mean, I don't mean this in a literal way because everybody needs some alone time. Uh, you're still a part of the church. But you as an individual, right, as an individual person are not the church. The church is a body. It's a community. And we are called as the community of God to experience the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, together. To be a part of this powerful movement of God together, right? To have God on each of our individual hearts. And we do experience this personally, right? To, to write His love and His name, in a sense, on our hearts. But we are not to be completely individualized in it, right? It's not just me and God. It's us, me and us and God. And this is the beauty of Pentecost that brings us both together, that unifies us, 
and empowers us to live, excuse me, to live lives that we never, ever thought possible. To live lives that we never thought possible. If the band would come up. You know, uh, growing up, I grew up in this, uh, in, in Pentecostal churches. Now, they were fairly sensibly Pentecostal churches, which I appreciated. Uh, I like to call myself a sensible Pentecostal. I think that's a good term. I'm a sensible Pentecostal. Um, I, uh, I believe that the Spirit moves and acts in our lives, that we can and should experience God in some real and true sense. But I also believe that as we do that together, what it leads us towards, and this is a little throwback to last week's message, is health, right? That it, that it leads us to being both mentally, emotionally well and not crazy people, right? So if you ever see me handling a snake, we have problems. No. Uh, I've actually never seen that. I've been, Pente- I've been in Pentecostal churches my whole life, and I've never seen that. There's a lot of different types of us. And those crazy ones are usually in the South. So they're all way down there. And I don't even like the South. So I'm a good Iowan. Anyways, uh, we're getting way off topic. Here's the truth, guys. And here's what I want to do today with us. Uh, I want us to open our hearts to, to Pentecost again. Not in a spooky way, not in a way uh, that's going to make us uh, crazy, right? But in a way that is thoroughly rooted in the story of Scripture, that is biblical and tied to what God has done, will done, will, will do, and, and wants to do in us here today, to open ourselves to God's Spirit in some real and true sense. Now, the Scriptures say, if, you, if you've come to Jesus, if you put your faith in Him, right, that you've been, in some real and true sense, regenerated, that God has put a new heart in you. But Paul says, Paul says this, uh, when he's talking about being filled with the Spirit. It's a very interesting kind of verb uh, in the Greek. He says, be filled with the Spirit. But uh, if you read that in the Greek, it means be being filled or be continually filled with the Spirit. There's this, there's this notion in which each of us constantly have to be reassociated with the God who loves us and wants to be near us. That always, always, always we need to be uh, opening ourselves up to the power of God, to the Spirit of God dwelling in our hearts and in our minds and transforming us. It's a, it's a continual thing. It's something that we always need to be walking in. It's something we always need to be open in. Even Paul himself seems to believe that that's something that needs to be happening, right? And so today, I just want us to open ourselves to the Spirit again, to be being filled with the Spirit of God. And the truth of the matter is, is that we don't do this, right? We don't do this. God does this. So we don't need to like, I don't need, I don't need to get y'all going into an emotional froth, to be honest. Because if God is God, then he does this. God, it says, is the one who meets us as the, as, in, via his spirit in our hearts. I almost showed a video today of, an, of, a, of a movie called The Apostle. Have you already seen that with Robert Duvall? where he plays an old Pentecostal preacher, and they do a, do a tent meeting. Uh, it's, it gets really intense, and I thought it would be funny, because I would say, this is what we're doing today, and then you guys would all leave. Uh, but that's not true. But we do want to open ourselves to the Spirit of God. We really do. And it does require you to open yourself, right? It does require you to say, God, um, maybe I'd like to try this, right? Again, maybe if, if you've encountered God before, uh, you can say, uh, Lord, 
I want to be being filled. If you haven't, you can say, Lord, I, I want to know that you're real. Will you meet me with your love? Right? We can all do that today. We can all do that today. So that's what I want to do on this Pentecost Sunday. Is that all right? Good. Good, good. So um, the band is going to play for a little while, and we're going to sing. And uh, I'll just pray here for each of us. If you wouldn't, you can posture yourselves however you want. You can stand, you can sit. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, God doesn't care what you do there. Uh, but, uh, but, but, uh, we do need to open ourselves to God. Because God is not, um, God is not going to force himself on anyone, right? It's not how it works. It's not how it works. But God does long to encounter us with his love and with his word, right? All right. So I'll pray, uh, and then the band will play. Father, we long to be near you, God. We know that uh, what you said all those years ago through the prophet Jeremiah uh, is true for us today, and that because of Jesus, we have access, real and true access to your spirit today, God. And while that might be scary for some or a little weird to others, uh, your scriptures say, and Jesus himself says, that it is the very key to living the life that he would have us live. And so out of obedience for our, uh, out of our obedience for our allegiance to Jesus, um, we say this morning, come Holy Spirit, wake us up, enliven our hearts, fill us again with, uh, with your love, uh, with your wind, with your power. Would you be near us here today? We invite you into this place. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.